Welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. Last year alone, we had 13 companies that defaulted on their financial maintenance company. Insurance companies have embraced new ideas. Cost of capitals has gone up higher. It's critically important what's happening with the jewelry market for gold. The Fed's been trying to fight inflation with these rate hikes. The timing is just perfect. Once the market stabilizes, you should start to see an influx of deal flow. My name's Stuart Foley. I'll be your host. Everybody's been asking us to have a regulator on, and we finally have one. Today, I'm thrilled to be bringing you a very good topic and a great panel on our podcast. The topic of conversation is trends in U.S. insurers ownership structure and the evolving regulatory landscape. And I'm joined today by two very special guests, Scott White is the Virginia Commissioner of Insurance and the Secretary Treasurer of the NEIC. He is also a member of the IAIS Macro Prudential Committee. Uh, He served as the chair of the NEIC's Financial Conditions Committee from 2020 to 2022. Scott, welcome. We're thrilled to have you on. Well, thanks, Stuart. It's great to be here. I've listened to a few of your podcasts, so it's finally great to be here and have this conversation with you and join the dialogue. Thanks so much. And we're also joined by, I have coined you the regulatory savant, Amnon. I don't think that's a name you gave yourself, but that's all good. Uh, Amnon Levy, founder of Bridgeway Analytics. Bridgeway Analytics supports insurance and investment uh, community, the regulatory community, navigating a complex set of rules and regs. Amnon has developed award-winning quantitative solutions actively used by over 200 financial institutions and their regulators, including the 2021 redesign of the NEIC C1 bond factors. Amnon, welcome back. It's always great to see you, man. Always a pleasure, Stu. Thank you for having me. So the U.S. insurance regulatory landscape is experiencing broad changes. There's noticeable shifts in ownership structure that have resulted in changing conditions in investment markets and the financial services industry. I am not the guy to be talking about this. So would one of you please set the stage for how the landscape has changed? Uh, Sure, Stu. Let me start off. Of course, I'm going to be very keen to hear Scott's perspectives on this coming out of a regulator who not only helps oversee the guidelines in the U.S., but is also actively in discussions with international rulemaking bodies. But really, there have been two noticeable shifts in the industry that came with a global financial crisis. Shifts in investment strategy, the, you know, something that we've talked about numerous times on your show, the low yield environment had insurance investment strategy move more heavily towards higher yielding alternative assets, such as private placements and structured products. And we also saw investments access through lower cost, efficient investment vehicles. We talked about feeder funds and, and those sorts of vehicles that insurers have found are particularly useful in supporting their policy blocks. Now, coupled with a shift in investment strategy, we also saw a shift in ownership structure. The investment strategy of you know where insurers are investing in alternatives was coupled with asset managers that were proficient in originating those assets, taking ownership stakes in those insurers, effectively helping them 
invest in assets that were really higher yielding. And that business strategy seemed to have worked incredibly well for them over the last, you know, 10 plus years. And I want to bring you in, Scott. I want to ask the icebreaker questions that we ask everybody, right? So what's your hometown? Like, where'd you grow up? What was your first job? And and throw out a fun fact before we dive into the regulatory things. Well, yeah, absolutely, Stuart. So I'm, I grew up in Missouri, like yourself, actually. This was our, our common bond and went to the University of Missouri Law School. From there, I practiced in St. Louis before moving back to, to Richmond, Virginia, where I spent the latter half of my uh, adolescence and met my wife. And so we moved back to Richmond and I've spent most of my career working for this agency, whether in the legal office or, or now as commissioner. And it's been a very uh, rewarding career, particularly in the last few years with all the issues swirling around. It's, it's very challenging, but also very rewarding. And what was the first job? Not the fancy one. We had, I don't know if you all have friendly uh, ice cream restaurants out there. I worked as what we called, it wasn't a dishwasher, it was a sewer rat. That was the official job title I had to put on my law school application when they were doing the background <laughs> check. And I that's got a awesome. lot of questions about that, but that's what I was. That's great. And the fun fact is, yeah, you and I are both, we both have Missouri roots. So you know, tigers. were regulators tracking these changes, Scott, that Amnon was outlining? Absolutely. So Amnon was focusing on two components of that, investment strategy and ownership structure. I would say the NEIC started looking at the ownership structure side of it all the way back to 2013 or 14 uh, when we began to notice these changes. And then more recently with the investment strategy, this push for a higher yield because of the low interest rate environment is something that we began to monitor. And not just the NEIC, Stuart, you also had you know, Congress, you had the Treasury, and uh, international rulemaking bodies were also uh, sitting up and taking notice. What we did at the NEIC through our macro prudential working group was to initiate a really broad review of these changing ownership and investment trends. You know, we were focused on materiality, but we started our efforts to refine the rules uh, and have them better align with the changing environment. And I put those into three different categories of what we focused on. Now, the first, uh, classification and treatment of concepts. And, and here, really, it's, it really deals with level of ownership and what constitutes control uh, and the broader set of related party relationships that we think should be considered in the context of investments, right? Kind of a, a broader way of looking at this. And also a move towards a principles-based bond definition with classifying assets that might receive more favorable treatment. So you might have, for example, a bond that has more features of an equity a equity characteristics, and we want to make sure that, that that's captured appropriately. So that's one piece of it. And then heightened disclosure is also a very important component. And we're, we're focused on affiliated and related party investments and also insurers' investments more broadly. And then the final piece is our risk-based capital uh, framework and making sure that there's the appropriate level of allocation across investments. And we've been focused in particular on two things. The first is uh, structured products like CLOs and the tranches within those, and then investment vehicles such as feeder notes. And so can you talk a little bit about, and I'm just kind of following our, our outline here, how material these changes have been? Speaking to some of the various segments in the industry, the changes are pretty substantial. I, my perspective is this is probably the broadest change on the investment side since the RBC framework was rolled out. The effort to classify a bond, that's pretty big. And you see 
quite a bit of interest in understanding what the implications will be. And it's going to take the industry and regulators, I think, quite a, a while to work through principle-based approaches that by their very nature are based off of precedence. Um, and that's something that I think we'll need to, to work collectively across the various stakeholders, you know, between the regulators, the asset managers, the insurers, and so forth. Now, one of the things that I did want to touch on that I think often gets overlooked is how relevant some of these changes are to the broader broader industry. So for ownership structure, for example, you know, when you think about the alternative asset managers that now have ownership stakes in, in insurers, now clearly the rules that Scott was referencing related to affiliates and the like and heightened disclosure uh, related to related party investments and, and, and such, obviously there's going to be material impact there. But when you think about asset managers that are not in the business of investing in insurers, there are also important implications. And clearly there's the heightened disclosure aspect associated with it where they'll likely need to provide support to their insurance clients in disclosing what the insurers are investing in. But there are more subtle issues for the broader industry to keep an eye on. And it's really the interplay between regulation and insurer strategy and the downstream effects. Uh, when you're looking at the, the impact uh, of changes in, in rules that govern trillions of dollars in assets, there's going to be a shift in capital markets ultimately as insurers shift their governance frameworks and their investment strategies to align with the new regulatory landscape. And often what you see is industries really react in a very cautious manner when regulators suggest heightened levels of disclosure and often are concerned about the burdensome nature of the disclosure. And sometimes for good reason, uh, you know, CCAR was rolled out. There was you know, that was a very costly effort, might be worth it, but it, nonetheless, it has to be acknowledged that those, those disclosures, those analyses are, are costly. But often it's also coupled with a market opportunity. This, you know, whether the heightened level of disclosure or standardization is driven by regulatory or market trends, uh, there can be very positive implications. You know, a great example is uh, the success of uh, CLO 2.0s, the standardization post-financial crisis, that was part of the reason that asset class really flourished. The transparency allowed institutions to feel more comfortable with those investments. So it's important for the broader industry, the broader set of investment managers to better understand the downstream implications and opportunities associated with some of the changes. Thanks, Amnon. So what are the regulatory concerns, Scott, when you're talking about shifting industry ownership and shifting investment trends? Right. Well, I'd start by saying, Stuart, that regulators, we generally don't regulate hypothetical practice. When we notice something emerge in the markets, there's always a continuous process of evaluating the environment, making sure the rules are appropriate for what we're observing, 
And the other thing is we take a very balanced approach, or at least we try to in terms of also looking at implications for costs associated with any compliance burdens that may result, talking about, for example, complex regulations or what the implications might be for competition. And it can be humbling when you're uh, looking at trying to get on top of some of these issues and in terms of the practice and appropriative rules and how they're designed. Sometimes the materiality of a trend can be misestimated, right? And all I would point to is a recent dramatic example with Silicon Valley Bank being placed under receivership. What you had in that situation was a rising interest rate environment that resulted in mounting losses the bank had taken on long-duration fixed income assets, and not just Silicon Valley, other banks, uh, and these began accumulating during the COVID era. And you combine that with the fact that it doesn't look like the bank had proper oversight and governance in place, and that's what resulted. So it's always a useful reminder and helpful to do. Uh, remember to take, you know, to pause at times, review our practices uh, when we see industries trending into these types of uncharted areas. And, you know, again, it's not confined to Silicon Valley or the banking industry. We always talk about what happened in the late, late 1980s, right, where you had over 175 or so life and health companies uh, become insolvent. And it really revealed a, a regulatory issue at the time, this, this approach of fixed capital standards, right? And it led to the uh, development of our current risk-based capital framework that we rolled out shortly thereafter in the early 90s. Really, we realized there were problems with the fixed capital standard that didn't address variations in fundamental risks, whether it's across sectors or companies. We had a framework where every company was required to hold the same minimum amount of capital without taking into account financial conditions, size, risk profile. So where we are today is we look at primary line of business and also uh, characteristics. Again, we focus on an insurer's size, but also the inherent riskiness of its financial assets and operations. That's very helpful. And Amnon, how is access to alternative assets improved with the changes in ownership structure? Right. I touched on that a little bit in the intro, but by their very nature, alternative investment opportunities require an understanding of nuances that are not standard. And as a corollary to that, the expertise and the controls that are needed to manage those investments, especially for you know, highly regulated and complex financial intermediary, it can't be easily outsourced. And while insurers generally have access to alternatives and you see traditional uh, life companies, for example, investing in alternatives, there is a benefit to having an alternative asset manager effectively take an equity stake and a first loss stake effectively in an insurer and then providing that channel for investments in assets that otherwise would be more difficult to manage. Now, as with other aspects related to optimal organization structure, there's always a balance between aligning functions that are best managed internally and those that are outsourced. And it really ultimately is determined by factors such as costs, incentives, and information flow. In the case of PE-owned or private equity-owned insurers, I think what's been demonstrated over the last 10 or so years is that there is a real symbiotic opportunity here, but it certainly needs to be managed appropriately. You need to have the appropriate 
governance in place. And, uh, you know, as Scott pointed out, as the industry shifted, regulators, AIC, and other rulemaking bodies realized that the rules needed to be updated to accommodate the new landscape. And Scott, one of the things I'd love to tell you that I was brilliant enough to come up with, but it's actually, I learned this from listening to, to the two of you discuss it. And this is my own like opinion, right? But one reason regulatory uh, oversight is important is the primary reason is to protect the policyholder. And when there, there's a claim file that the insurance company can pay that claim. And if, and there's, if in the event that an insurance company gets itself into trouble, the regulator can limit the amount of dividends that that company pays out as a way to conserve that company's resources. However, when you have investment management owned insurance companies, sometimes there are fees that are being paid from the insurance company to the owner that is tantamount to dividends, but not necessarily under the same regulatory purview, right? Can you talk about that concern that for regulators and and how that shakes out? Yeah, certainly. And and certainly you hit on a big issue. Now, Amnon did a great job of describing some of the benefits of these ownership and related party investments where incentives are in line, but it does raise, you know, a unique, unique set of regulatory concerns in this context when you have this investment manager. So I would point to three different areas and you touched on one of them. You have a transparency around undisclosed management fees. Do we even know what these fees are? regardless of how much they are. And then that ties into fairness. How do they compare to the market standard for management fees? And then potential conflicts of interest where you might have a certain bias that exists to overweight investments that the manager can source with other elements that are difficult to define. So let's talk about the investment management fee structure. That can lead to a lot of different problems with payments that might be viewed, as you said, as, as unauthorized dividends, right? So we, we regulate this space of dividends But we can't use a lever uh, when it comes to management fees if you have a a situation to where you need to recapitalize a troubled company, for example, in the same way you could with dividends. Uh, We put certain things in place in in one of our task forces at NEIC. We have a new test, an asset adequacy test, that's going to require disclosure of these management fees. And it's going to give us a much better sense of of what the materiality of it is when we assess uh, the solvency of these companies. And what about? I guess for either of you, what about risk sharing and proper governance, which are critical, but, and not limited strictly to PE relationships? That's a a really interesting point, Stu, and something that I really want to reinforce the observation that these issues are not specific to private equity-backed or alternative asset manager-owned insurance companies. The issues related to aligning incentives are as old as, as asset management. Even going back to the financial crisis, we saw thoughtful approaches to governance and risk sharing as AIG was being recapitalized as an example. If you recall, in that case, there were two LLCs that were formed, uh, made in lane two and made in lane three, that were designed in a way that required AIG to retain a subordinated portion of the two LLCs. And 
effect it became a, a related party to the bailout risk, right? Now, the deliberate structuring of these assets in, in this way and, and the deliberate uh, sharing of, of risk ultimately allowed AIG to remain an operating company and for the federal government to recover its investments. When you think about how that played out and you think about how you structure a relationship between an investment manager and an insurer in the context of an arm's length relationship or in the context of an insurer that's owned by the asset manager, you want to be deliberate and transparent with how that relationship is structured in terms of the fee and incentives. And that's something that I think is critical. You, you don't want to narrow how you think about the problem to only be relevant to PE. And in that regard, the broader industry should remain aware of the issues because ultimately regulators are going to effectively extrapolate what they've learned from working with better designing rules given the new ownership structure landscape, if you would. And then they're going to look at other parts of the industry and possibly extrapolate. Think about how investment management relationships that might be more traditional, whether they are adhering to kind of the new heightened standards. So a lot to think about in terms of how broadly relevant these trends, these changes to the guidelines are. Thanks, Amnon. That's very helpful. So Scott, what changes has the NAIC rolled out to address their concerns? Thanks, Stuart. That's a great question. And I do want to emphasize the, the broader point Amnon made in terms of our activities-based approach to looking at these issues. We've talked a lot in this podcast so far about the need for transparency and heightened reporting requirements. We have rolled those out for affiliate and related party investments. And again, this, this relates to notions related to control that can possibly lead to these conflict of interest and, and the problems that can develop from that. So what are we talking about here? What constitutes control? We're looking at it more broadly than we typically do, which is mostly or usually associated with 10% ownership. Now it's considered to require a broader set of relationships, references a related party. So we're emphasizing, uh, you know, New York did a circular letter, for example, and what they came out with is uh, a relationship can arise from a contract or other factors and not necessarily tied to ownership of voting securities of insurer. And we think that's, that's right. The other thing I would point to, again, there's a lot of work. We have 13 different regulatory considerations uh, in, our, in one of our capital actually task forces. Uh, we've made changes to enhance the accuracy and uniformity of RBC calculations. And again, focused on affiliated investments in all insurance sectors. The final thing I would mention in, in terms of focusing on efforts to improve transparency I mentioned this asset adequacy testing. That's very important, and we think it's going to capture a lot of information that we're not getting to the degree we need to uh, you know, make changes to our rules. So we're talking about reporting and analysis of management fees, for example, related party investments, as well as investments in structured securities and other complex as it applies to a group of qualifying life insurers. So we're trying to target that audience or that sector of the industry that where these issues have arisen that we've been talking about on this podcast. That's really helpful. And one of the things that, I mean, I'm, I know, you know, right. So our, our audience is insurance investors and asset management firms, and they all want to somebody to predict the future for them. 
Right. So I'm, I'm asking you to polish up the NAIC crystal ball and uh, what additional changes do you expect in the foreseeable future? That's a really unfair question. And I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that's that's fair game. And, you know, I would start with, you know, the beginning of the year, we get together and we come up with our strategic priorities for the year. A new one this year, the issue is not new, as we've discussed, but it's become a, an identified strategic priority is something we call ensure financial oversight and transparency. And so, again, that includes a lot of the work going on. I mentioned the macro credential working group and these 13 regulatory considerations. And again, it's focused on financial transparency around private equity affiliated insurers, but also traditional life companies and, and related investment activities. So uh, there's work going on with industry and also the Society of Actuaries to improve on best practices for these new asset adequacy tests that I just discussed and refining the likes of things like spread attribution that, that differentiate these uh, investment risks. Also, we have one of the uh, working groups that they're going to continue to frame possible concerns with contractual agreements that might be structured and avoid regulatory disclosure and requirements. Again, it gets back to pro we want to capture this information through transparency and, and refined reporting. The last thing I would mention, you, we ha always have to keep in mind what's going on in the international front. And if we look at the IAIS roadmap, it has really honed in this past year on, you know, as one of their macro credential themes, structural shifts in the life insurance sector that include the involvement of private equity. So they're going to be focused on a couple of different things, cross-border reinsurance that we haven't really spoken about, but also these changes in asset allocation towards more complex and illiquid investments. And so just kind of to wrap, start off with you, Amnon. Uh, simple question, not easy to answer. What are you optimistic about right now? I think there's a lot to be optimistic about, uh, quite frankly. I gave the example of CLO 2.0 almost a poster child for how improved transparency and standardization could really help an asset class become much more prevalent and accepted by the industry as a efficient vehicle. I'm optimistic that the heightened disclosure and the improved processes that she is pushing forth will allow the industry to really improve on their investment processes. I think that there'll be some costs that the industry will have to bear as they readjust to the new environment. But I think that there's a real opportunity here. And I'm also optimistic about the fact that the NAIC has been as deliberate um, you know, Scott mentioned the asset adequacy tests that now have heightened requirements around complex assets and around management fees. And while still at their formidable stages, I think we're seeing the right questions being asked. Those discussions are being done very openly with feedback from the industry and interested parties. And we're seeing the process, ultimately, what I think will lead to something that will benefit the industry as a whole and ultimately policyholders. And what about you, Scott? Same question. And I, before we go there, I just want to say Amnon has mentioned on several calls, you know, the regulatory environment with the insurance industry is really unique. And 
the regulators really go make a tremendous effort at getting industry feedback and it's an iterative and collaborative process, right? And which has over time worked very well. And you guys have a really tough job. And I just want to just throw my two cents in here that you guys are, you're doing an amazing job and, you know, really very happy to have you on. But same question to Amnon. Uh, what are you optimistic about right here? Yeah, and I think that transparency piece uh, and the deliberative process that I, you know, I appreciate those remarks, uh, Amnon, and I agree with at our best, that's what we're trying to do. And it's always a series of trade-offs, right? It might take a little longer. That's where the NEIC can be criticized. But also we feel we understand that we're missing things if we don't involve the industry and the overall product uh, is better. Actually, Stuart, I would just kind of make the same observations as, as Amnon in terms of we have uh, really tried to take a deliberative and, and transparent approach to identifying and addressing. Again, there's a wide range of potential risks here that result from shifts in ownership structures and these investment strategies. We're not trying to foreclose these strategies as we've talked about the benefits. We just want to make sure that we have in place uh, effective rules that better align with these changes in a way that results in a safer, again, more transparent and also a competitive landscape. So that's kind of the goal there. And we're very optimistic we're on the right path forward. That's fantastic. We have been joined by Amnon Levy, founder and CEO of Bridgeway Analytics, a reg tech firm that supports investment and regulatory community navigating complex regulations in capital markets, and Commissioner Scott White, who is the Virginia Commissioner of Insurance and the Secretary Treasurer of the NEIC. He is also a fellow Missouri Tiger. So uh, thanks very much to both of you for being on and for your insights. And Scott, especially, thanks so much for taking the time and, and making yourself available to the industry. I, I know that they appreciate it, and I, and I do too. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Stu. If you have ideas for podcasts, please shoot us a note at podcast.insuranceaum.com. Please rate us, like us, review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps so much. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the insuranceaum.com podcast. Thank you.